walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Hey everybody, welcome back to the Camino Podcast. We're back. It's, you know, a little summer vacation, a couple months away, but that just gave you all the time that you needed, I hope, to catch up with the flurry of episodes that we put together in May and June, and now with school starting and summer ending, it's time to get back to work, and here we go. So, I'm Dave Whitson. I spent about five weeks this summer in Spain on the Camino. It was great. I'll uh, talk about it in another episode. My book partner, Laura, and I are going to spend some time debriefing our experiences on some of the northern Caminos. But uh, but I had a great time uh, going both back to the Camino del Norte and the Camino Inglés, but also trying out some new routes, the Camino Vasco del Interior, the Ruta do Mar, which uh, connects the Camino del Norte and the Camino Inglés, and some smaller side trips on the Camino Le Baniego to Santo Toribio and uh, a, a trip to Covadonga. So I've done a ton of walking and, you know, I got back actually in early August and I thought I had the idea going into it that I'd transition back pretty quickly to the podcast. And I did reach out to some people and have been trying to get some interviews scheduled and it's you know, moved along in fits and starts. But the reality is that that's just reflective of (laughs) my general experience in in all parts of my life over the course of the last month, that re-entry has been hard. And, you know, there's there's no rhyme or reason to this. I have, I've had some uh, Camino experiences where I come back and Immediately, I'm settled in and I'm on fire when it comes to work. I'm really productive. And this time, I was just stuck. Uh, my body was pretty well thrashed. And I remember the the, the second night back, um, I had really terrible dreams uh, uh, just involving pain in my um, calves. And I, I think they were cramping all night. So I was uh, I was feeling them like tightening up in agony and uh you know that's that's not what you want <laughs> at any point but especially not when you're uh when you're trying to recover from uh, a, a physically ambitious trip so um so I apologize for uh, a longer than expected lag I suppose you know given the the other lag that occurred uh last spring I should get used to the fact that when you uh when you lose that momentum it's hard to get it back sometime but We're getting it back. So this episode really is just going to focus on one extended interview. And um, it's a great one. It's one that I've been waiting on for a long time. Started the process of trying to connect and and find a good time last spring. And we just made it happen um, pretty recently. And this is a conversation with David Gitlitz and Linda Davidson. David and Linda are... um, huge figures in the recovery and the resurgence of the Camino de Santiago. They walked it for the first time in 1974. 1974! And um, they were both professors, and they started uh, to take students uh, on the Camino and and went through the process of of trying to discover and, and, and 
re, re, recover the root and they had a tremendous impact and the biggest impact they had probably is through the book that they wrote together the pilgrimage road to santiago the complete cultural handbook and if you're familiar with this book you know it is a masterpiece aside from the 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 few people on amazon who complain it's too detailed which okay um i i mean i understand if you don't want to carry it it's pretty big takes up some room in your backpack but there's a kindle edition now and good lord i love those details this book is uh just a fantastic resource and in the same way that you know the expression goes that all of western philosophy is just a footnote to plato i think that a lot of the resources out there on the camino are just a footnote to Davidson and Gitlitz's book because it is that thorough, that exhaustive. Um, and if you want to know what you're looking at as you walk along the Camino, if, in a church, in a town, in a field, there's a good chance that they have an answer for you. So um, for the Camino Francais, the Camino Aragonese, this is an indispensable resource. It's not going to help you with beds. It's not going to help you with some of those logistical points for which a guidebook does come in handy. But it can answer just about every other question that you have about the route. And David and Linda have a lot to share beyond that because they've had so many experiences. Experiences on a very early version of the modern Camino de Santiago. And so it was a real joy for me to get to talk with them, hear some of their stories and experiences, you know, walking under the rule of Franco. It's uh, it's mind-boggling for, for someone like me who uh, only got connected with the Camino so much later. So I hope that you all get the same uh, joy and um, uh, satisfaction out of hearing their stories that I did. So it's a long interview. It'll take up most of this program, but I think it's worth every single minute of it. Okay, so that's today's episode, focusing on uh, on David and Linda's experiences on the Camino. And more episodes to come. I've got the building blocks in place for a couple more right now, and uh, and we'll just keep it rolling. As always, if you want to get involved you have a story of your own to share, if you have a suggestion for someone that I should be reaching out to or a topic that you'd like to hear covered and learn about, I'm all ears. Please get in touch, CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Facebook page, which is, you know, just facebook.com slash CaminoPodcast. So both ways are great for reaching out and making a connection. Thanks for sticking with us over the long hiatus. Hope you enjoy and uh, stay tuned. So I'm speaking with David Gitlitz and Linda Davidson, both former professors at University of Rhode Island, specialists in Spanish language and literature. They're in near Oaxaca, Mexico right now, but they are best known for their seminal work, The Pilgrimage Road to Santiago, The Complete Cultural Handbook, which is really a must-read resource for pilgrims on the Camino Frances and Aragonese. 
Thanks for talking with me, David and Linda. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. It's uh, it's a, really it is great to talk with you, and uh, your book has been a huge influence on me. And one of the things that has always stood out is just how early you were in um, hitting the Camino, whereas most people who are walking it today, the earliest, you know, in the in the forums, maybe were in the 90s, but more likely in the early 2000s. You walked to Santiago in 1974. How did you go about developing plans for that first walk? I'd been uh, a uh, professor at Indiana University at that time. Mm-hmm. And I had... Uh, spent uh, much of the previous 10 years uh, doing a lot of walking around Spain, although never in the, in the Camino. <laughs> been uh, motivated, I guess, by the books of uh, Sela and Goitisolo and others who, who thought that the real Spain uh, could be discovered by uh, walking through the villages. <laughs> so I'd, I had done some thousands of kilometers prior to uh, our, our doing the walk. I had read Starkey's book on the, the way to, of St. James, and it had been uh, latent in my mind. And I got this idea that it would be fun to try to recreate a medieval experience for a bunch of students as a way of uh, giving them a kind of a cultural context for understanding medieval uh, literature. Yeah. And the more I dreamed about it, uh, the more compelling it became. Uh, the road was not marked in mm-hmm. those days. Uh, in fact, there was uh, there was no firm map of the road. So I spent a, lo- a lot of time, two, three years, reading everything I could. We Serna, Serna, Vasquez de Parga, and some of the other uh, scholars who had written a lot about the legal structure of the, the, the medieval road. And I had a friend in the Spanish army. This was during Franco years, so right. uh, topographical maps were not readily accessible. <laughs> but he managed to get me some seven-and-a-half-minute maps for the entire north of Spain. Wow. Uh, and with my reading, I began to figure out what would be a uh, – seemed like the, the inappropriate route. Uh, as, as you know, there were, there were many, many routes across the, the north. Mm-hmm. There are some places where geography is determinative, <laughs> so there really is only one place to walk. Mm-hmm. There are other places where the de- geography flattens out and there are multiple uh, paths possible. And, of course, pilgrims walked on all of them. Mm-hmm. So I picked a, a set that I thought would be interesting, guided in part, by my sense of uh, medieval travelers, and in part by uh, the fascinating uh, historical and artistic monuments along the route. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure to hit them all for our students. Um, So there was that, and then there was an enormous amount of of background reading. Uh, And then the question was how to recruit students uh, for what seemed like a pretty crazy enterprise. So I put up a sign at the university that says, uh, spend the summer of 1174 uh, in Spain. Hmm. Uh, walk across, walk 500 miles across Spain. St. Francis did. Why not you? <laughs> Lo and behold, uh, the word got out, and we had seven students, mm-hmm. uh, most of them from Indiana University, but not all, uh, apply, and they all seemed qualified. We required a couple of years of Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, because one of the one of the things I tried to do was to run the program entirely in Spanish, 
and uh, and then we set off and walked. We met in Roncesvalles, mm-hmm. but never set foot on the road. So it was an adventure for all of us. Wow. And it uh, it turned out to be as as I say compelling, uh, and so we repeated it many many times over the years, over about twenty five years. That's it's awesome. uh, roughly seven or eight year intervals. Do you have any defining memories from that first pilgrimage? You mentioned that Franco was still in power at the time, but but it's it's getting towards the end of his time in power. And what stands out to you from that first walk? It was still a very conservative place. Right. Uh, Nobody had told Franco it was near his time. (laughs) Uh, The other is that it, uh, you know, uh, northern Spain was uh, uh, very conservative and rural. The women dressed in black. Uh, Agriculture had not evolved very much since the late Middle Ages. Hmm. Most of the plowing was still done by horses or oxen, oxen. They hadn't yet done the great concentration of lands to create uh, large farms out of the patchwork of small farms. Most farmers still walked to work in the morning from their villages. There were almost no houses in between villages. So it looked it looked very uh, like it had for, for a long, long time. Wow. We had to learn to wash our clothes in rivers, <laughs> or sometimes there were the local lawn, the hand, la- hand <clears throat> laundromats, where we met up with the women in the villages, if we were lucky. There was, a, there was zero support structure. Yeah. Absolutely zero. Uh, I uh, had written a, a letter to the mayor, the priest, and the school teacher of each of the villages along the route, <laughs> saying that approximately such and such a date, uh, an American professor would be coming through with a bunch of students to uh, try to recreate the medieval pilgrimage, uh, emphasizing that it was not for us a religious pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. As part of our trying to uh, approach medieval culture, uh, we would be attending church services uh, pretty much every night if we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I uh, figured that we would uh, uh, be able to make contact with one of those three people in each of the villages and maybe they would they would help us get uh, get ourselves lodged and fed and sometimes it worked and sometimes it it didn't I'm afraid another thing that we put into the initial program design was to have a a support vehicle that went along with us mm-hmm. and one of the reasons to do that was to name one of the students each day as the driver of the support vehicle. And their job was to go ahead to the town that we'd picked as our destination and to uh, make sure we had lodging and make sure we had some place to eat. And if right. there were no restaurants in the town, to find somebody to cook for us, to find out where who had the keys to the monuments and make sure that they were going to be open to contact the priest and make sure there was going to be a mass and then the hour that it was going to be. And these were these were essentially third-year Spanish students, uh, <laughs> and they were terrified uh, at having to do that by themselves. But uh, they all did, mm-hmm. and they all did it repeated times over the course of the program, and it was a, an enormous confidence building. But that also meant that we could walk with day packs and notebooks uh, and it also meant we could carry a, a, a small supporting library on history, art history, and the like with us in the car mm-hmm. so that there were resources. 
It also meant that if someone got sick or got hurt, that we did not lose any days holed up somewhere for one person. They could go in the support vehicle. Mm -hmm. We we also required a term paper. Uh, We did that every time we ran the program. And the the term paper was due at the beginning of the program. Hmm. That is before we set out. And it was to profile the history and art uh, of one of the towns along the route. And we gave them a set that they could pick from. And then when we visited those towns, they became the guides. Uh, and that too was a, a, a wonderful uh, experience for them. Mm-hmm. Were, how were you received? Were people suspicious of you? Were they really excited by your presence? Like how was, how was that reception along the way? I don't think anyone was ever suspicious. We were almost always welcomed with open arms, mm-hmm. almost unquestioning. I got to Ronces Valles. It fell to me the first night to cross the border and to set up at Ronces Valles while the others hiked from Saint-Jean, hmm. Pierre-Port. And the monks just said, well, here's a dormitory that we don't use anymore. You can have it. It's all yours. <laughs> Go ahead. It was a little dirty. I had to clean it up. A, a lot of people said to us that they had, they knew that they were on a pilgrimage route, but they had never actually seen pilgrims previously. Exactly. Wow. They were really excited. Uh, in some towns, uh, when the word got that we were a day or two away, they arranged to close the schools or to have us visit <laughs> the school in the <laughs> afternoon so the kids would get to see a real pilgrim. Uh, and many people brought us prayers. Yes, that was the other thing. Sometimes written, sometimes oral, that uh, that we should pray for them when we got to, to Compostela. To the Apostles' Tomb. Now, and even though the, we made it clear always that we were that we were most many of us were not Catholics. I'm not. I'm not Catholic. Linda's not Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, may not, in fact, even be spiritual. But we were. We were doing this pilgrimage, pilgrimage in, the, in the spirit of the day, the day being at that point uh, the late May of 1174. We did hokey things like uh, there, were, there were some armies on the move in the, in the summer of 1174, and we made sure to skirt them so that we, would, that we wouldn't have any, any run-in with the soldiers. Uh, you know, they all kind of make make students aware of the contexts in which all of these things took place. Of course, the military maps weren't always the best guide, and um, one of the things that stands out is that we ended up on the military airstrip outside oh, no. of Burgos and were um, sweetly escorted off. <laughs> By some very surprised soldiers. So, so we walked on the other side of the river, and of course we bumped right into the uh, to the political prison. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. no. <laughs> With its guard towers. <laughs> yeah, those things happen. Those things happen. Uh-huh. Uh, well, another one of our sticks was to try not to uh, recognize anything that was built after the uh, 12th century. <laughs> Partly this was a, was a gimmick and to make them aware of dating and to aware of styles. And partly it was um, uh, to make them aware of the, the rigors of geography on medieval travelers. For example, we did not use modern bridges. 
and wow. we had to figure out way, ways to cross the rivers that didn't have modern that didn't have bridges from the period, <laughs> and that produced uh, was a was a very solidarity building kind of exercise, as you as you might imagine. <laughs> we we didn't lose any students. We came close <laughs> once, but yeah. As I said, it, it fell to me to um, on the very first day of the pilgrimage to to set up the lodging in um, the monastery in Roncesvalles and comes along six o'clock, seven o'clock in the evening, and my pilgrims do not show up. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, uh, the, the road over Roncesvalles was not marked. Mm-hmm. There's a highway, but uh, of course you, you didn't want to do that. You wanted to get up to the, pa- the old pass. And I managed to, you know, it, it's easy to point yourself at the top of a mountain because you just go up uh, toward the top. The hard part is picking the right path to get down on the other side. About halfway up, a heavy bank of clouds came up out of France and entirely whited us out so that we couldn't see uh, our hands in front of our faces. And when we got to the pass, uh, there were several possible routes, and I had a compass, and I had the map, and none of the uh, routes coincided exactly where I thought they ought to be on on the map. So I picked the most likely and down we went. And it turned out to end us up in a deep forest about 10 kilometers west of Roncesvalles. <laughs> oh no. It's called Orbaiseta. And uh, night came on and it was rainy and uh, we had uh, all these students and it was their first day. And, <laughs> and the question was, uh, what were we going to do? And we took a vote and we thought about maybe just kind of looking for a dryish place or finding a little cave or something. And then we said, no, I think I, I know where we are now from the topography. I think I can get us to run this by this. It's about 10 kilometers. I know we've been walking all day, but you think you can handle it? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we can handle it. <laughs> Meanwhile, on my end, the, the monks realized that no one had come. And I told them, well, they, you know, crossed... Um, the Pyrenees today mm-hmm. and not on the highway and they said well we'll do what we've done in times past immemorial we will ring the bells <laughs> we will make sure every valley knows and so every 15 minutes or so more more frequently than that um, the bells in the Roncesvalles monastery would ring out and we traipsed about three hours through the wo- through the woods, and then and then we heard these bells pealing in the far distance. Wow! And uh, eventually we made it about one and one or two in the morning. Yes. Oh my but gosh! But I tell you, it it was uh, a remarkable experience for the students because they were afraid of nothing after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they knew that that was going to be the toughest day on the entire on the entire pilgrimage. They were wrong. <laughs> They were wrong, that's true, but... There was a harder day than that till one in the morning? Yeah. 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 It was tough. But, you know, there were other things that made you you aware that it was Franco Spain. In in one little town, uh, we were arrested for wearing short shorts. Whoa. Violating the the public moral. Uh, It was was kind of a joke, and the mayor said we would all have to go to jail. Uh, We didn't. but uh, it, it was cute, and uh, we didn't see anybody else wearing shorts. And the funny thing is, in 79, going back through that same town, mm-hmm. uh, so that's uh, four years after Franco's death, and it was the middle of the great destape, when the, the lid was coming off, 
the uh, the ladies from the town were all swimming topless in the river right outside, <laughs> right outside the town. And that's in four years. That's yeah. that's a big change. Yeah. Big big change. Uh-huh. The other thing is there were there were still echoes, uh, peculiar echoes of medieval culture that struck us as literary scholars. I mean the kind of things, you, incidents that you dream of happening. Uh, again in the Pyrenees, we uh, in that '74 pilgrimage, we came around a corner. Mind you, it's me and seven women. <laughs> And there was a, a shepherd sitting there, and he was smoking, and he, you know, the sheep out in front of him, and he saw us coming, and you could just see, he just, he, he dropped the cigarette, and his <laughs> mouth gaped, and then without breaking, you know, even stopping to think about it, he said, Nunca fuera peregrino de damas tan bien servido como este peregrino cuando de Francia vino. <laughs> Quoting from a, you know, riffing, riffing on a Carolingian ballad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know whether you speak Spanish or yeah. not. I, I don't know if the audience does, so you might, you might translate it. Well, it, never had, was there a pilgrim so well served by ladies as this <laughs> pilgrim as, uh, when he came from France. Yeah. It's the beginning of an ancient ballad from the, from the Spanish repertoire. So there, that kind of thing, that yeah. kind of thing happened from, uh, from time to time. That's awesome. We got to a little town in uh, in um, Torres del Rio. Yep. Uh, with that beautiful little uh, church uh, mm-hmm. with a with the Islamic style dome in it, and uh, the parish priest was waiting for us. He knew we were coming, and he lodged us in the uh, in the hayloft <laughs> of a barn of a family there. And uh, I asked the the woman, our hostess. She also fixed us dinner. I said, you know, how did uh, how did he talk you into this? And she said, well, our family traditionally has always been the family that lodges pilgrims coming through. Wow. We haven't done it in a few hundred years, <laughs> but we're delighted to have the opportunity. And then we went to tour the church, and uh, a little old woman, whose name I, I don't recall at this moment, said, uh, this church goes way back, doesn't it? She says, yes, but it wasn't always a church. Says my grandfather used to tell me when he was a son, when he was a boy, and Napoleon's troops came to the village, uh, that they uh, quartered their horses in this church. Uh, I I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who knew anybody who had who, who had seen Napoleon. Yeah. I mean, that, that was just another one of those extraordinary things. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of that was going on, and as time went on. Uh, and we repeated uh, less and less and less of that kind of thing happened to yes. us. Uh-huh. What an incredible experience. I imagine that as you were putting together the route, you mentioned before that in some places the the route was pretty much predetermined by geography, but in other places it could diverge in a lot of different directions. And you got to make all the calls your first time around. Pretty much. We learned some things along the way. Yeah. I'd always been interested in ancient history, mm-hmm. and I knew about the Roman highway system. I knew less about the medieval highway system, but I, I soon learned that in some places they coincided, and in some places the, the, uh, the Romans preferred to walk high on ridges where they could avoid ambush. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the medieval roads tended to go up the valley floors, and uh, so whenever we had the choice, we took the Roman roads for the mm. views. 
We also were struck by the fact there were so many remnants of the Roman calzada still visible in uh, 1974, I almost said 1174. <laughs> but um, many of them have since disappeared. Hmm. Uh, like uh, there was a, after you cross the Puente La Reina, the, the River Arga, mm -hmm. you walk uh, a couple of kilometers on the flat and then you have to climb to a ridge road. Mm -hmm. The ridge road still has some traces of, uh, of uh, Roman calzada on it, but there was a gorgeous switchback that went from the valley up to that road uh, in Roman paving. Wow. And that disappeared about 1980. It's all plowed under. There isn't a trace of it left. Jeez. And there's some other places where that was the, that was the case as well. That's too bad. It is too bad. Uh, with a little more foresight, that kind of thing could, been, could have been avoided. Are there any routes that you followed, villages or towns that you passed through that are connected to the pilgrimage historically that the Camino Frances of today, the official route, neglects? I'm wondering if you're surprised at all by how the route evolved and some of the places it might, might bypass. Well... Uh, yes and no. Mm -hmm. uh, we're uh, uh, more surprised at how much uh, improved, and that's improved within, uh, <laughs> there are air quotes there, I don't know whether you heard them, uh, the road has been. So much of it is paved, so much of it has been developed into uh, somebody's idea of modern walking paths. Right. Uh, so much of it now follows uh, motor roadways mm -hmm. that the ambiance of those early years has pretty well been lost. I mean, when you left Burgos, uh, you were out on the on the flats on dirt roads, and I don't believe we crossed pavement once from Burgos to Leon. Wow. And um, uh, now, of course, there's the superhighway that runs right along where the road uh, where the road goes, and that's too bad. Mm -hmm. Because the kind of sense of, of loneliness and wide open spaces and disconnection, that's such a key part of the kinds of spiritual changes that pilgrimages are designed to induce in people, mm -hmm. really don't, uh, don't happen, you know, when you got the trucks roaring by. So we were sorry to see that. We, we made some choices in 74 that took us to some towns that the currently official marked road doesn't go to. Mm -hmm. We went through, uh, had a lovely evening in a town called Ormasa once, mm. and that was just lovely. We've taken, uh, there's an interesting alternate route, that's a couple of kilometers from uh, Belorado uh, West, which we uh, have walked several times just to avoid the, the roads that go near the highway. Yeah. So th there are a bunch of bunches of them. What other major changes did you see over the course of, I, I guess it, it almost feels like a silly question to ask because it's, it's pretty much everything, right? Like I, you mentioned the roads themselves, all of a sudden there's an abundance of paved roads, entire highways being developed. Um, we, that happened very quickly. Yeah. Um, in 1974, most villagers walked to their fields uh, huh. And that meant that the network of roads that radiated out from the villages that had been in existence since the early Middle Ages was still viable. Mm -hmm. To any, any place, to any other place uh, on dirt roads. Uh, between 74 and 79, your average Spanish peasant bought 
uh, had enough money to buy a moto. And hmm. so instead of walking to work, he would he would uh, uh, motor out to the closest point on a paved road and then walk in from the paved road. And as a result, almost the entire network of radiating roads was lost between 1974 and 1979. Wow. In 74, we walked on, on dirt road 95% of the time. Mm -hmm. In 79, it may have been 40% of the time or even wow. a little less. Uh, the beautiful roads were, were choked with, uh, with brambles or had been plowed under with the concentration of lands. And it was really bloody awful. <laughs> so much so that we, uh, we let 10 years go before we did it again, pretty wow. much. And then uh, uh, some other things happened between 79 and 87. And one of them was the uh, popularity of, of hiking in Europe. Right. And things like the... Uh, uh, Grand the Grand Rondonnet in France that was doing hiking maps to interesting trails and they were marking them in Spain as well and there was there was a sense of of developing foot networks places mm -hmm. <laughs> and they uh, they uh, restored or recreated or invented alternates <laughs> to some of the some of the medieval foot roads between between villages and that helped mm -hmm. a lot Mm -hmm. 70, uh, 79 was the low point for hiking for us. Yeah, it's really interesting because I spoke with Jack Hitt about when he walked in the early 1980s and he mentioned that he ended up walking on pavement a lot of the time. So I had this idea in my mind that the trajectory was that it that early pilgrims were walking on pavement early in terms of the resurgence and then less so. But there was actually this great period in the 70s when it was almost entirely off-road. Uh, yeah, yes. in the early 70s it was. By the late 70s we were on road, and by the late 80s uh, we were on another kind of of path, right. but very often off road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other is uh, there was you know there was zero support structure in 74. Mm -hmm. Frankly, there was zero support structure in 79. Not in, much. Yeah. In, in, in 74 we we met on the road a total of zero other pilgrims. Mm -hmm. In 79, we doubled that. <laughs> Actually, we did better than that. We met one pilgrim okay. in 79, and he had walked from Norway. Paris, Paris I thought. Well, mm -hmm. uh, that's right, Paris, because he'd made a vow during the war yes. that if he survived, uh, this is the Second World War, if he survived it, he would make pilgrimage to Compostela, and he had, he had just recently retired uh, and he uh, he had decided to walk it, uh, and I think his wife was going. His uh, wife was doing the support vehicle route. Hmm. She would go ahead and set up a hotel room or something, um, so they'd have some place to stay that night. Yeah, but by the '80s, the road was getting crowded. The towns were uh, taking some of the old buildings and turning them into albergues. Hmm. There were tent cities. Uh, some of the some of the Provincial governments were setting up tent cities, and uh, as the autonomias began to, to flex their muscles, some of them were beginning to set up tent cities. In Sarria, once, we must have seen 200 tents laid out along the river. Wow. And, and no bathrooms. <laughs> but eventually that got taken care of, too. Was there a moment where you knew that something 
really big was happening, that this was going to become something much more, that, that it was going to begin to approach its its old, earlier medieval significance again. Yeah, 87. Mm-hmm. That was the one where we just looked at it and said, this is changing beyond uh, uh, an adventure or a personal adventure. Um, by then, as David mentioned, the autonomias had begun to take an interest, the tourist dollars. We had gotten a call, David and I, and then Mary Jane Dunn, who was already busy in, in pilgrimage research as well. Mm-hmm. She was a student in 79. Um, we both got calls from the Spanish Tourism Department or, or Secretaria, you know? And they asked what would be a good way to get the tourists off of the beaches. <laughs> Answer, because, you know, it's Marbella. For the um, for the British, as they say it, mm-hmm. and we all answered why you've got this wonderful uh, marking trail, uh, walking trail. I'm sorry, um, to the Camino, and that could be done. And then the autonomias get started. They realize they can put some money in their coffers, and I think also the church got very aware that um, the pilgrimage to Santiago was getting some interest, and they could use it as a way to uh, arrest the eroding religiosity or spirituality among Spain's youth Hmm. and even Europe's youth. There was in the early 80s more vacation time allotted in European countries so that people had more time to spend away from home. And that coincided with the New Age uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Think of Shirley MacLaine. Yep. And about that time, and I'd have to go back to my notes, but the um, road was marked as the first European cultural itinerary. Mm-hmm. So there was concerted efforts locally and uh, on the autonomous level and on the national and international government levels to do something with this route to make it, um, to realize its speciality. And by that time, uh, local confraternities, not only in Spain, but also in France and Germany and Switzerland and the Netherlands, had begun publishing their um, monthly or or bi-monthly journals about the pilgrimage to Santiago and who's going. Mary Jane Dunn started the Friends of the Road to Santiago, and I can't remember the date. (laughs) And then walking the route, there were also people like Padre Valinas Mm -hmm. in Sebrero. I have a picture of one of our students sitting on one of the steles that he managed to get put up every... Half kilometer. Every half kilometer, it seems like. The last 100 kilometers to Compostela. Yeah. So there were personal efforts, too. We had met Padre Javier in Roncesvalles in 74. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was instrumental in getting the, the bells to toll. <laughs> and from then on, he would mark the route. <laughs> he would take uh, a nice spring day and a can of paint and mark the route from Roncesvalles down into, I don't remember. To, 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 to um, Pamplona. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. We marked it with him in 74 to Pamplona. Wow. Probably the first markings on the modern road. And again, in 74, we had met um, Jose Maria Alonso Marroquin, whom all will know as Padre Jose in a little town called San Juan de Ortega outside of Burgos. Oh, of course. The he served soup. us garlic soup. Yeah. By 87, that was an institution. He welcomed every pilgrim. He had a beautiful new, was the new albergue built by 87? Mm-hmm. Um, and so these individuals along the route helped make the route uh, much more popular, I think. Mm-hmm. As, a, as an aside, uh, uh, he also took us through the Atapuerca Caves in 1974 before they were closed to the public. Wow. That was an extraordinary experience, too. Was all of this hard to see? Like, by the time you reached 1996, your your last time through, it, did you stop as, as much because you just couldn't couldn't take how much it had changed from your early experiences or or were you were you happy about some of the transformations that were occurring cerebrally (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if that's a word (laughs) we realized that the pilgrimage was becoming what it was in the middle ages Mm -hmm. um, the the efforts of the church the efforts of the people the hospitality and so forth was beginning to look like a medieval pilgrimage but emotionally, on my part, anyway, it was not, once you have an experience that really changes your life, mm-hmm. try to repeat it. You have to allow for changes both in yourself and in the uh, ambiance of the, the experience. But it was disappointing that it did not offer to the students the kind of reflection or the kind of specialness um, that it that it had in the in the seventies. Hmm. You know, uh, I don't know whether you read Victor Turner. No. Who has done a lot of uh, fundamental writing about pilgrimage, and he talks about pilgrimage uh, involving a separating yourself from your ordinary existence and recreating in the company of other pilgrims uh, a world which is apart from the ordinary everyday world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and allows you to grow uh, emotionally, spiritually, in other ways, um, until you you have this culminating moment at a at a shrine somewhere, and then the long return journey to meditate and to process uh, the experience, and then a period of reintegration as a changed individual into your into your former society. The isolation is really key to that. And with a modern cell phone, uh, that seems to be completely lost. Hmm. Uh, People carry their everyday lives to a large extent along with them. And while they have a, I I think in many cases, a wonderful experience, it's it's no longer uh, replicating the, the earlier pilgrimage experience. And we were, we were we were acutely aware of that. Yeah. I don't know the extent to which pilgrimage going on the Santiago Road is a life-changing experience for people today. I haven't been mon- monitoring this. Mm-hmm. You may have read uh, Pilgrim Stories. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the author was another one of our veterans, went, went with us on the program. Wow. When she was a graduate student at Berkeley in anthropology. She mm-hmm. went in 87. Yeah. She she chronicles uh, how how some of the pilgrims in her in those days and and in the people that that we met in '87 were affected by the the pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of the students who went with us had any prior commitment to uh, certainly medieval studies or engaging really in an academic life as a career. But uh, it's amazing how many of them have. <laughs> I, I imagine that was a, an incredibly powerful experience. And you're, you're referencing Nancy Louise Fry, is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, Nancy yeah. Fry. Whom you will notice is still in Spain. Yes. And yeah, working she, on the Camino. She, yeah, she leads uh, groups on the Camino, correct? Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there are others who have, have, uh, have either become gypsies, <laughs> constant travelers, or, or several have remained in Spain. Wow. Over the years. So she has a very significant and influential book on the Camino, and of, of course you do as well. So while your book was really useful for appreciating some of the clearly significant sites like the Burgos Cathedral, one of the things that I've appreciated about it is it is just so thorough that it gives equally uh, good attention to so many less prominent places, places all along the route. I mean, you are very exhaustive in your coverage of significant sites all along the Camino de Santiago. And so I'm yeah, wondering... It's, it's funny how many of the reviews heighten the exhaustive. Who has, <laughs> <laughs> who has the energy? Who has the time? Boy, they're hitting it with all of this minutia. I can't be bothered to walk 100 paces off of the road. I have to get to such and such a town. And uh, the, there may be a beautiful ch- Romanesque church in Leboreiro, but I'm not going to deviate from my route to see it. Yeah. Well, that's too bad. <laughs> uh, one of, I think, Linda's and my obsessions over the years has been to help people learn to appreciate the visual and cultural uh, reality around them mm-hmm. in a historic and a historic cultural context that makes it more meaningful and that's that's kind of what we designed the program to do and that that's what the pilgrimage has been for us to to learn to see things and to and to and to appreciate them in a broader a broader sense to notice detail to draw consequences from those details what are some of your favorite spots along the way you must have some that really stand out in your memory as being um, great discoveries or or or, or uh, experiences from your time. Hmm. I liked Vilar das Donas, which is in Galicia. It's somewhat two or three kilometers off the work trail. Mm-hmm. Was a, a beautiful medieval church, long neglected, that uh, had wonderful sculpture and. And the ambiance around it in reinforce its medievality. Yeah. Every time we've done it, we've insisted that we that the students take a sort of a oh thunder in the background, <laughs> uh, take a three day deviation uh, to go up to San Miguel de la Cogolla. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we read uh, Berceo. We look at the extraordinary church at Santa Cruz, San de la Ceros. And then we go bushwhacking up the mountain to Pasuengos, mm. a little bitty, bitty village up on the top. I don't know whether you've ever, you've, you've ever done that one. 
I've never made it that far. I once followed your directions from Nahara to Samian de la Cogoya, and I made it there. But then I had to backtrack to my students in Nahara to continue. Right. Well, yeah. uh, well, someday if you can spare the time. Yeah. Pasuengos was a little frontier town way the hell up in the mountains. Totally insignificant, except that it was in dispute between Castile and, uh, and Aragon. And uh, the... Um, excuse me, Castile and Navarre, mm-hmm. rather than go to war over it, the two kings decided to put their champions up and whoever won the battle would get to keep the town. <laughs> Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar won, and that's where he got the title Cid Campeador. Wow. And from there, there's a long, long walk down an, uh, an oak-covered ridge to Santo Domingo de la Calzada is uh, as, as stunning as, as any, any road you'll ever walk. Just wow. gorgeous. You have to watch out for the wild boar, but <laughs> but it's it's really something. Uh, we were we were delighted to find on the Aragonese route uh, so many megalithic monuments uh, oh, yeah. within uh, a couple of hundred yards of the path. Mm-hmm. That whole walk uh, up to Leire, and the the walk on the south side of the of the reservoir and, and going through the Fosse de Lumière. Mm. Uh, is uh, I had not done that previously, hmm. and uh, having a chance to do that was was wonderful. And so are the 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 Mothadabe churches in the in the valley of uh, that leads you down to Sabinianigo on that uh, eastern pass. And the the walk up from uh, San Juan Pieta Port is is lovely. But if you can afford an extra 10 days, those central, central Pyrenees passes and routes are uh, just un- unbelievably gorgeous Yeah, and interesting culturally. Yeah, they're very memorable walks and, uh, and many fewer people. <laughs> that, that's also true. Yeah. You've both done quite a bit of research related to, the, to pilgrimage and to the Camino. And I'm just curious... Do you have any ongoing projects that you're still pursuing, or are you are you fully and officially retired from your academic lives? Uh, oh, never on that one. You got to be kidding. Morning. <laughs> uh, <sighs> yes. I'm finishing a book on um, the earliest uh, of crypto Jews in the earliest silver mining communities here in Mexico. Wow. Uh, so, so something totally different. Yeah. When after we finished a couple, the book, um, The Pilgrim's Guide, mm-hmm. we were asked to write an encyclopedia pilgrimage, <laughs> which took us a couple of years extra than we had anticipated, but um, tries to look at the whole idea of pilgrimage worldwide. And when we got done with that, we realized that even though um, um, Judaism does not have pilgrimage, Judaism does have pilgrimage so we wrote a book on the pilgrimage and the Jews and that veered us off um, to another area of David's expertise which is um, uh, the Inquisition and um, Jewish and crypto Jewish culture and so we've been concentrated there Hmm. Uh, somewhere in the middle I had an administrative career for a while too I was a dean of arts and sciences for a, for a, a large research university and then an academic vice president for another large research university. And I found that time consuming, yeah. uh, as, you, as you can imagine. 
It's it's interesting. That also was a, a way of appreciating the world in even broader contexts. Mm-hmm. But but in the last few years, we've shifted uh, much of our emphasis to Mexico. We've worked a lot in the uh, in the archives here in uh, in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And also in the Archivo de Indias in Seville and in the in the Portuguese uh, the Torre de Tombo in Lisbon. And uh, it's kind of tracing the early immigrant families and what happened to them. And it's that's been that's been fun yeah. to welcome change. We've also discovered that there's a very lively and rich and probably understudied pilgrimage culture at every level here in Mexico. Hmm. Guadalupe, of course, is the is the major sure. uh, shrine for most of Mexico. It is not for Oaxaca where there's another shrine called La Virgen de, de Juquila. Hmm. And uh, the, 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 the numbers of people who go to the little mountain village where her church is and who build local shrines to her, there, there are four separate ones in the, in the little village where we're currently sitting, uh, dedicated to that virgin. And people go on pilgrimage to her every year. Hmm. So that's in the queue of things that we'll probably write about. Interesting. Do you see yourselves ever returning to the Camino, or is that part of your life closed and behind you now? Uh, that part of our life is never done. It's with us every day. Sure. We've been back several times, uh, not as pilgrims on the Camino Frances per se. Um, you know, there's a there's a center of pilgrimage studies in Compostela, and we've gone back to to some conferences there and contributed to some books that they've put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we, we keep up with that stuff, but most of our attention is elsewhere at the moment. Yeah. And we're, we're as much as we'd like to, uh, we're not getting younger. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm mid seventies. So I've got, I've got some more good walks, but yeah. not, probably not as many as all that. Well, this has been great. I, I really enjoy hearing your stories and it's just it's incredible to think about the fact that the two of you were there when the when probably the first modern waymarks were added to the route between Roncevalle and Pamplona and you know here we are some 40 plus years later and it's it is a whole different world there so thanks yeah, for being it's, it's become an industry and the the loss that you incur is is obviously a gain that's experienced by many and and probably as well all of the wonderful sites that you documented in the book, which I hope have seen a significant amount of, of funds devoted to their preservation and, and maintenance that maybe wouldn't have been there otherwise, so that your book will remain relevant and, and very, very useful for a very long time. We hope so. I wouldn't put it in terms of loss. Mm-hmm. The road has changed. Uh, we have changed. Our late 20th and now early 21st century Cultures have changed, mm. and the road has acquired new meanings, and probably will re- acquire many more as time goes on, and all that's pretty exciting. So what kind of things did I pick up from David and Linda's book? Well, there's all kinds of stuff. There's some basic factual things to help you understand the lay of the land. 
Like I didn't realize that the building in Roncevalle as you descend was not just a monastery, not just a church, but a real collegiata, which is a sort of hybrid of the two with both monks and secular canons. When I walked inside and I saw the 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 version of Roncevalle up at the front um, at, on the altar, I didn't know that the the term for the uh, ornate silver canopy over the top was a baldachin, which comes from the term for Baghdad um, in the mid- Middle Ages, and and understandably so because that's where silk cloth was imported for for canopies in um, in church buildings and religious buildings. I didn't immediately know what the chains were all about. And you see a lot of chains in Navarra. Um, and you'll see them at Roncevalle, um, at the foot of Sancho's tomb. Um, and you'll see them in many other places too, but they connect back to the decisive victory over um, Muslims in the Reconquista at Las Navas de Tolosa in 1212. And that's a powerful symbol that I would have been clueless about otherwise. I didn't know the history to Pamplona and how it was many different ward off, uh, walled off barrios uh, in the Middle Ages and how they were constantly at war with each other um, until eventually they were torn down in the 15th century and forced to you know, just get along. I didn't fully appreciate just how unusual the Y-shaped crucifix was in the Iglesia del Crucifijo in Puente de la Reina. Um, in Sirauqui, I would have walked past the cemetery if I hadn't known that there was a Spanish Civil War monument um, nearby, and, uh, and, and I w- would have missed um, that piece of history, which was you know, eliminated in, in most places. I, I had no idea what to look for inside of many of the churches. I would go in, I would look around, I'd be impressed, but it, it would be hard to determine... Um, where I should really focus my my attention, my energy, my eyes. And, you know, if you've been there, you know that some churches are open all the time and others are, are harder to gain access to. But with this book, I knew which ones I wanted to set as a priority. For example, in Estella, there's the really impressive Iglesia de San Pedro de la Rua, which is, you'll, you might remember all of the steps going up to it. It's on the left side of the river near the municipal albergue. And uh, it's it's closed most of the day, but if you go to Mass, you can get inside and hunt around. And I knew because of their book that the cloister walls um, were really important and that their Romanesque capitals were uh, something to behold. And so I committed the time. I went, and, and, and I really was blown away by what I saw. One of the things that I really appreciate about David and Linda's book is you know, it has all of the technical stuff that you might want to know. It's systematic. It will cover a lot of the uh, religious buildings. It will tell you what you're seeing. But there's also some whimsy and some humor involved. For example, I've never had students quite as excited for poking around the inside of a cathedral as they were when I told them to look for the urinating angels in the choir in the Burgos Cathedral. <laughs> you know? And, and there's something that, I mean, there, it makes you appreciate to some degree the, the humor of the builders 
in the Middle Ages, that these weren't just dour, humorless, um, overly serious um, men of faith. And that might be some of my, you know, own um, uh, biases at work and in, in leaping to conclusions like that. And I apologize for that. But, but that there's that there's room for some funny stuff, even in these sacred spaces. It's okay to smile a little bit. So go look for the peeing angels. Um, I could go through the entire book. Every page, I got something useful. And uh, just knowing the amount of time, the amount of energy that went into that, that they were go operating at a time when you couldn't count on a bed or even food. You just weren't sure what you were getting when you walked into a town. And they managed to get into all of these spaces, many of them locked, and to really document it thoroughly. You know, we who walk today... There's the expression, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And obviously when it comes to the Camino, a lot of the giants are from hundreds of years ago. But we do have the giants of the present. Uh, the, the Padres who went out with the yellow paint, who marked the way for this next generation of pilgrims. And for Americans, David and Linda are two who really stand out for their contributions for helping us to really get the most out of our pilgrimage experience. So I'm quite grateful to them for their work and for, for joining me to talk about their many experiences on the Camino. That's it for this episode. It's good to be back. And I'm uh, looking forward to getting more episodes posted over the course of the next couple of weeks. As always, you can find us on SoundCloud, on northerncaminos.com, on iTunes, and on Facebook. Again, that's facebook.com slash Camino Podcast. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com. Please get in touch again if you have any thoughts, if you want to get involved, if you have any suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. That's all for now. Talk to you next week. Maybe my baby see me again.